0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the fiction of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 21. Hi there, folks. I'm back from my vacation at beautiful Glacier National Park, and I'm ready to bring you more podcast fiction goodness. For those who are new to this show, my goals are to write at least 450 words every day, and to write for at least six hours a week. On the weekends, I share what I've been working on with all of you. Fun, right? So let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Part 6 of my short Metamorph City novel, The Three Graces. The following recap contains spoilers, so if you haven't listened to Parts 1 through 5 yet, go back and check out those episodes now. It's cool. I'll wait. When we last left Nathan and Amelie Grace, their daughter Natalie had been kidnapped by mercenaries. Amelie received a phone call from Malcolm Ardvalos, the prince of the vampire crime syndicate in Metamore City. Malcolm explained that the mercenaries had been hired by one of his subordinates, in an effort to coerce Amelie and Nathan into cooperating with the syndicate's goals. Malcolm claimed that he found such tactics rude and unnecessary but that he could not cancel the contract directly without exposing his operations to the police. Instead, he provided Amelie with background intelligence on Natalie's whereabouts, including how to get in without being seen. Priestess Allura, the vampire head of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood in Metamore and Amelie's sire, begged Amelie not to go. She was sure that Malcolm was trying to lure Amelie into a trap. But Amelie could not be dissuaded, so instead, Elora went to the church office to find Nathan, since Malcolm had warned that the mercenaries would try to kidnap him as well. Shortly after Allura arrived at the church, however, an explosion tore through the gas mains in the church furnace room. Within minutes, the entire building was alight. Elora worked heroically to get her people to safety, running back into the burning building again and again, to save as many as she could. It was a choice that cost her her undead life, as a second explosion collapsed the building's interior, with Allura inside. The Three Graces A Novel of Metamore City By Chris Lester Part 6. 20. Natalie. I didn't really see how we got to the place where they tied me up. It was dark, and I couldn't turn my head to look at anything, and my eyesight isn't really the best anyway, because, hello, bat. I know we went down a long way and based on the fact that I didn't see anything else below us when we came out of the skimmer lift, I figured we had to be on the street. Navigation on the street has got to be really confusing. The towers get fatter as they get closer to the ground, so more than half the streets we were driving on were really tunnels going through the buildings. A lot of those tunnels look a lot alike, so after a few bends and turns, I didn't even know what direction we were heading. The guys in suits pulled the skimmer van into a garage, the kind with ginormous roll-up doors that look like they're meant for moving tanks or semis or something. Inside, there was a big elevated platform at one end of the room, and a bunch of crates stacked on it next to some kind of conveyor belt. I found out later that it was a factory, but I don't know what they made there, and at the time I was just disoriented and scared and not really thinking clearly, so I didn't know where I was. I had a crazy thought that maybe they were going to put me in a crate and ship me off to Algra or something. Grandma Grace says there's people who do that to girls. I don't know if it's true, but that's what it made me think of. Instead, they steered my body up a ramp and took me deeper into the building. There was this platform in the middle of a big, dark, open space, a stack of, like, wooden pallets or something built around one of those big eye shaped metal pillars that I guess keep the roof from falling down. They made me climb up to the top of the pallet stack, which gave me a pretty good view of the dark, empty floors around me. Then they took some chains, honest-to-God iron chains, and they chained me up to the pillar. The chains went from one arm to the other and wrapped around the pillar and back, with maybe a meter of slack between them. And then, because I guess they weren't stupid, they put an inhibitor collar around my neck. Now, wizard-wise, I didn't know very much back then. I could do a few cantrips, nothing flashy and definitely nothing dangerous. But I'm a theriomorph, always have been, and I could shapeshift before I could walk. That's not wizardry, but it is magic. And an inhibitor collar keeps you from doing magic. So, no changing into a bat and flying away. I was stuck there, even if whatever they'd done to freeze me would eventually wear off. I wasn't really thinking about any of that at the time, of course. All I knew is that as soon as that collar snapped shut around my neck, my sense of my magic was gone. That made me feel even more powerless than the chains in the binding spell. One of the suits looked up at me, chained with my back to the post. "'You can sit down if you want,' he said. "'You're probably going to be here for a while.' I didn't say anything. I still couldn't. Oh, right. The man gestured, and the binding spell fell off of me. I could move my hands and feet. I pursed my lips and wiggled my tongue, just to make sure everything worked. Then I took a deep breath and screamed my lungs out. The suit watched me, like you'd watch an interesting-looking bug. I ran out of breath, so I took an even deeper one and screamed even louder and longer. The man looked at his watch. Fifteen seconds, he said, when I ran out of air again. He was nodding like he'd just seen someone make a really tricky shot in a skyball game. You got some lungs on you, kid. You done now? Because you've got at least two meters of concrete and a hundred more of open air between you and anybody who gives a fuck what happens to you. I could pull out every one of your finger claws and then carve you up like a roast goose. Nobody's going to hear you. And if they do... Nobody's going to do anything about it. You get me? You know that sick feeling people talk about when they get summoned to the principal's office? How you know you're totally, completely screwed and nothing you can do is going to change that? Yeah, it never happened to me either. But at that moment, I think I felt the grown-up, real-life version of that. Our, I broke off, coughing. Screaming like that is hard on your throat. I swallowed and tried again. Are you going to kill me? Not planning on it, Sue guy said. You're not worth any money if you're dead. Alive, you might be worth a lot. Your daddy's a rich man now, you know. I thought about the crazy penthouse, excuse me, the belfry, where we lived now. Yeah, I know, I muttered. No reason this has to get ugly, the man said like he was trying to make me feel better about being kidnapped and ransomed. Your dad's man has been around a while. He knows how this works. You know Harrison? I didn't believe it for a minute. They might dress in the same kinds of outfits, but this guy didn't sound anything like a younger version of Harrison. By reputation only, suit guy said. Your dad was smart to hire him. As long as he plays by the rules, he'll be home soon. He gestured at the pillar again. So relax. You want some water? I wanted more than water. I should have had dinner hours ago. I was starving. But I needed water, too, especially the way I'd just messed up my throat. So I nodded, and suit guy went off to get me a drink. I tested my chains. They were real steel, all right. Didn't even bend a millimeter, even when I put all my weight against them and pushed off the pillar with my feet. If I put my back to the pillar, I could reach up and feel the inhibitor collar, but it was padlocked on, and I didn't have any more chance of breaking the thick leather strap than the lock itself. I tried climbing up the pillar, using the chain to help hold me steady as I walked up, but once I got 9 or 10 meters up, I could see there was nowhere to go. The pillar went all the way up to the girders in the roof. There was no way to slip the chain free. I couldn't even see very much from up there. Most of the lights in the building were off, though I thought I saw some emergency exit signs off to my right. What do you think you're doing? Suit guy called up. He didn't sound mad, more surprised and curious than anything. Just taking a look around, I called down. Yeah, well, get your ass back down here, he said. Last thing I need is you falling and breaking your neck. Not a problem, I said. Bats are good at climbing. I scaled back down the pillar faster than I'd gone up, landing on the pallets with hardly a sound. He tossed me a water bottle, and I caught it and drank. "'When will I get to see my dad?' I asked. "'That depends on him,' suit guy said. "'We offered him a meeting. We're just waiting to hear back.' I sat down with my back to the pillar. The pallets were rough and splintery, not very comfortable to sit on. "'Why am I on these pallets?' I asked. Raises you up off the ground, Suit Guy said. Makes it easier to see you. He shrugged. And if anybody tries anything stupid, there's a bunch of plastic explosive underneath. He mimed, pressing a button with his thumb, then spread his hands while making a boom sound between his lips. So be good, all right? I'll be back to check on you in a while. Honestly, it would have been less scary if he'd been seriously threatening but he was just so casual about it, like he could blow up little girls and then go home and watch the evening news with his dinner. I shut up, drank my water, and tried to stop shaking. I sat there for what felt like forever. Sugai did come back to check on me, but only once, and he just brought me a bucket in case I had to pee. I heard other people walking around and talking in other parts of the building. Super bad hearing, don't forget but all the echoes made it hard to understand what they were saying, and they didn't exactly explain their plan to each other, because, duh, they were all in on the plan, so why would they? The only thing I understood was when they said Dad didn't show up where he was supposed to. Some of them argued after that, but I couldn't tell what they were planning to do now. I guess the one in charge was going to call somebody and ask for instructions, because I heard him dialing on a mobile phone, and then a door opened and shut. While he was gone, I heard something else. Metal sliding on metal, like an old door or gate moving on hinges. It was pretty loud, but only in the really high range where most animals can't hear. Suit Guy and his friends didn't seem to notice. There's a fun science fact you pick up pretty fast when you're a bat morph: Super high-pitched noises are really, really easy to locate in space, and they can tell you a lot about what's around you if you know how to make sense of them. That's the whole reason bats and dolphins use high-pitched noises for sonar. Now, you might think vampire bats wouldn't need sonar as much as insectivore bats, but they evolved from the same ancestors, and they haven't lost the knack for it. My ears are sharp. I knew the door, or gate, or whatever had just opened, was about 50 meters behind me, and next to some metal equipment that reflected the sound really well. That meant it was in the middle of the building not near one of the exits that the suits were guarding, and based on the echo I got off the ceiling, I was pretty sure it was in the floor. I'd heard about the old commuter tunnels under Metamore City. Some of them were still in use, at least during the winter, when snow removal was tricky. A lot of them were supposedly used by monsters. Grandma Grace always warned me to stay out of the tunnels, especially if I was alone. There was a good chance that door led to the tunnels. There was also a good chance that anything coming out of those tunnels was looking for something to eat. But there was also a chance, maybe a small chance, but a chance, that someone would use a door like that for a rescue mission. I moved around to the other side of the pillar, holding my chains and moving slowly so I wouldn't make a lot of noise. I turned my ears in the direction of the sound and listened carefully for anything else. Nothing. If anything came out of that door, it was being super quiet, and it was way too dark in the building to see anything that far away. But like I said, I've been training my ears for a long time. So I opened my mouth, tightened up the back of my throat, and let out a string of sonar clicks. If a human had been standing next to me, he wouldn't have heard anything. Seriously, the clicks are that high. It's hard for me to describe what it felt like for me. Sonar is more than just hearing. The sound is so high, so clear and sharp, that my brain interprets it almost like light. I see images in the sound, like rippling pulses of fuzzy black-and-white pictures scanning over the darkness. Except that's not quite right either. Honest, this isn't as crazy as it sounds. It's just like trying to explain red to a blind man. Short version? When I click, I can see in the dark. And what I saw was a woman sneaking through the building, moving as quietly as a ghost. She stopped, turned her head this way and that way, and then the echoes died and her image faded. I clicked again, saw her moving a little closer. She stopped again, stood straight up. Her body changed shape, just a little from a human shape to a theriomorph shape. I could sense fur where there had been skin a few seconds ago, and big pointed ears. It seemed like her arms got a little longer, too. And then she clicked at me. My heart started pounding hard. There was only one woman who had sonar who might come looking for me. Mom! I wanted to shout to her, but I knew that would just get both of us in trouble and it might get me blown up if Bossman pushed the boom button on my pile of explosives. I made myself stay calm, stay in control, and just keep clicking so I could watch what Mom was up to. She obviously knew where I was, she just needed to figure out what to do about it. I wished I could tell her about the explosives, but there didn't seem to be a way to do that until she got close enough to talk. The frequencies that are above human hearing are too sharp and intense to be turned into understandable speech, even for a bat morph. If I knew telegraph code, I could have clicked out a message. But come on, this was Metamorph City in the late 20th century. If anybody still knew telegraph codes, they weren't teaching them in my schools. Besides, Mom didn't know them either, as far as I knew. Looking with my sonar now, I could finally see that I was in a factory. There were assembly lines with big machines all along the length of the building. Mom climbed up the side of one of those machines, got up to the girders overhead, and started walking along them. She looked totally calm and relaxed up there, like walking on a balance beam 30 meters above a concrete floor was no big deal. I was seriously impressed. I had never imagined Mom doing anything like that. She walked up to the column I was chained around and looked down. I could hear her clicking, chucking things out. I wondered if she could hear the reflections from the plastic explosives under the pallets. I could, now that I knew they were there, but I'd never seen plastic explosives before, so I wouldn't have known what I was looking at until Suit Guy told me. Somehow, I was betting Mom didn't know anything about explosives either. I needed to find a way to tell her before she got us blown up. Then I almost banged my head against the pole for being so stupid. Duh. Mom was a bat morph. Sonar wasn't the only way her hearing was super. Great job, Natalie, I sighed, softly, like I was just talking to myself. Just great. You went and got yourself kidnapped right off the skyway. And now you're sitting on top of a bomb and hoping boss Man doesn't blow you up before Mom and Dad ransom you. I heard a very quiet gasp from the rafters overhead. I smiled. Face it, Natalie, I said. You're no action hero. Even if you could somehow get loose from these chains, there's no way you could get that trigger away from the boss man before he blew you up. You'd better just sit back and wait for Dad to call him back. Sugai told you Dad has his number. I switched back to clicking to see what Mom was up to. She had something in her hand. Her phone, I guessed, and she was typing into it fast. Then she ran, ran along the girder toward the side of the building where Bossman had been, and still she didn't make a sound. She went behind a bunch of the big machines, and I lost sight of her. Something like a minute later, I heard Bossman's phone go off again, or at least a phone with the same ringtone. Then I heard something that sounded like crunch, thud. Holy crap. Was Mom this tough all along, and I just never knew it? Or was Priestess Alora giving her, like, secret ninja lessons or something? I heard one of the other kidnappers calling for boss man. I didn't hear what he said, but at first he sounded confused. Then I heard him walk closer, and he sounded worried. Then he got to the spot where I heard the crunch thud, and he made a choking sound. I heard a gun come out of its holster, then fall to the floor. Then there were some more choking sounds, some rustling clothes, and then snap, followed by silence. After that, there was more confusion, then shouts. Then the kidnappers were running all over the place with electric torches, waving them this way and that way. I clicked, but I didn't see Mom yet. Sue Guy came back, moving quickly and quietly. He had his keys in one hand and a gun in the other. We've got to get you out of here, he whispered. A monster got inside the factory. Come with me, I'll get you to safety. He reached out for my chain. I laughed and swung it out of his reach. A monster, I said. Yeah, right. I swear to gods, Sukai said. It just busted Halen's skull open and broke Tyler's neck. Whatever this thing is, it's vicious. He reached for the chain again, and again I spun around the pole to keep it away from him. Well, sure she is. I said, and I couldn't keep from laughing again. You just kidnapped her baby. Sugai straightened up and stared at me. What the fuck are you... Mom dropped down from the rafters and landed on him. She had his hair in one hand and pulled back his head while she pressed her knees into his back. How dare you use such language around my daughter, she hissed. Like, actually hissed. It was creepy. Then she bit him and slashed his throat open, and that was terrifying. Um, look, I don't really want to talk about this. What I saw, it, it was bad, okay? Yeah, but I don't know if you've seen this bad. No, that's not what I meant. Mom is... All right, fine. Fine. I'll tell you. Here's the thing. Mom and Dad and me, we're all vampire bats. We have fangs, and they're really sharp, and we drink blood. I don't like drinking blood, but it's good for me. So I learned to make it part of my diet, like your parents probably made you eat your vegetables as a kid. So the sight of blood, the smell of blood? They don't freak me out the way they freak out a lot of people. But I'd never seen blood coming out of a human throat before, except in a few scary movies. And I definitely had never seen Mom kill anybody. And I definitely, definitely had never seen her put her mouth over a guy's squirting throat and gulp down blood like a frat boy chugging a beer. I screamed. And screamed. And then I screamed some more. Mom didn't even seem to notice. She was checked out, off her nut, like a shark in a feeding frenzy. The blood sprayed all over her, and it seemed to make her even wilder. She bit and slashed at him with her little bat fangs, and the blood went everywhere. The blood sprayed on me, too. She must have got his aorta, because you'd never believe blood would come out of a body that fast. But she just kept gulping it down, and biting, and biting, and... Then she changed. Her fur pulled back, and the hair on her head got long, and her face changed. At first, I thought she was turning human, but then I saw her eyes glowing this yellow green, and her forehead grew these ridges that reminded me of a snake's head, and her jaw got heavier, and instead of having her little bat fangs, she had like a mouthful of these ginormous predator teeth. And then she really went nuts. She tore at the guy's neck, grabbing and shaking him like a freaking wolf. She growled like a wolf, too, deep down in her throat. She dug big black claws into the guy's head and shoulders and started gulping down not just blood, but whole mouthfuls of meat. Then something snapped, and suit guy's head came off of his body. Mom roared like a lion or a dragon or something, She turned and threw Suit Guy's head across the factory. It landed near the exits. I wasn't clicking anymore, since I was too busy screaming at the real-life horror movie that was happening right in front of me, but I could see it bounce and roll in the light from the exit signs. I heard a bunch of people scream and then run out those exits. Mom kept ripping at that headless body for like five minutes. She tore open the stomach and ate the innards. I couldn't stand seeing it, but I couldn't look away. I just kept staring and screaming. And when I couldn't scream anymore, I sobbed. And when I couldn't sob anymore, I just sat there, huddled in a ball, and shook like I was having a seizure. I was in a nightmare, and my stupid brain would not wake up. So I had to watch as this thing that had been my mother ate the only guy in that whole gang who had been the slightest bit nice to me. Not that he was a good guy or anything, but come on. Nobody deserves what happened to him. What Mom did to him. After a while, something changed in her. It was like a dog losing interest in a toy. She dropped the body, sniffed it, then started looking around and listening. Her eyes still glowed that creepy yellow-green and the part of my mind that was still sane guessed that she could probably see in the dark even without clicking. She turned and sniffed at me. I cringed and covered my head. I didn't know what she was going to do to me. She pressed her nose to the back of my neck and snuffled it, just for a few seconds, but I thought for sure the next thing I was going to feel was her teeth. Instead, there was a long pause, and then she spoke. Natalie. It didn't sound like Mom's voice. It was lower and rougher, kind of growly. I started crying again. Natalie, what's... How did I... I heard her get up, take a couple of steps. Then she must have turned around because she screamed. Oh, gods! She gasped. Oh, gods, what did I... And then she threw up. I looked up. She looked human now, the same human version of herself that I used to see when she shifted out of her theriomorph form. She was standing hunched over the pile of bloody meat and bile that she'd just vomited all over the pallets. Headless suit guy lay in front of her. She stared at him, at her hands, and she was shaking. "'What have I done?' she whispered, over and over again. "'What have I done?' what have i done what have i done concludes part six. Come back next week for the final episode of The Three Graces. Amelie has rescued Natalie, but can she save her from herself? What will become of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood now that Allura is gone? How will Malcolm take advantage of the power vacuum? And who is the mysterious interviewer questioning the Graces? Find out next week. Ray Bradbury said, you must stay drunk on writing so reality cannot destroy you. Think of this as counting the empty shot glasses on the bar. Here's your weekly writing report. The last time I brought you an update, it was recorded on Thursday, September 24th. Since then, I have written 9,027 words over the course of 14 hours— for an average writing speed of 645 words per hour. As of Thursday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 136 days without breaking my chain. I finished out the month of September with a total word count of 20,476 words over 30 days, for an average of 683 words per day. I spent 27.75 hours writing during the month. That's a little bit down from what I managed in August, but still better than July. During that time, I wrote one complete story, Maternal Instinct, completed author commentaries for five stories, and started another new story in Metamore City. Not exactly my most productive month, but a lot of that was because I was trying my hand at a completely new genre. Stepping out of your comfort zone is always risky, and I'm glad I took a stab at doing something different. On September 29th, I started writing that new story in Metamore City. This one is titled The Way is in the Heart. It's the story about Kevin that I wrote the outline for way back at the beginning of July. It seems to be going well so far. I have a strong sense of the character's voice, and the writing is flowing easily. I'm already up to over 3,700 words. I'll keep you posted about this one as the story develops. And now, the feedback. Jennifer Rutherford writes, I just wanted to say that I was blown away by the ending of part five. Wow, Allura. Whopping respect. A woman of many contradictions who was happy to die while saving her people. That was awesome and impressive. Thank you. Halcyon S. also chimed in on this part, saying, After the end of the latest episode, I find myself torn. Allura wasn't a good person. Her willingness to subjugate and use others is frankly something terrible, and like Natalie alluded to, was a type of rape. But she did care for those under her care, which is good, and makes her death emotionally wrenching because she's not someone I like, even if I do have to respect her willingness to risk her own life to save those she considered hers. So I'm left wanting to condemn her for her clearly evil actions, even as I appreciate her good action in saving the lives of others. Just like life, things are seldom black and white. And somehow, I'm sure the explosion and the kidnapping is all part of Malcolm Ardvalos and his Xanatos Gambit. For those of my listeners who aren't familiar with that term, Halcyon S. is using a piece of terminology from TVTropes.org. A Xanatos gambit is what the tropers call it when a character sets up a situation so that every possible outcome gives them some form of victory. Thank you both for writing in. Allura surprised me repeatedly as I was writing this story, and her contradictions and complexity really made it fun for me to write her. I tend to think that most people have a mixture of good and evil inside them, And the more personal power you have, the more those inner traits will be revealed, simply because there's more you can do to act on the things that drive you. And whatever else may have been true of her, Allura definitely had a lot of power, even if it didn't save her in the end.
1: Hi, Chris Lester. My name is Therese, and I have been listening to your podcast ever since the Metamorph City podcast started. I have been a faithful listener, and I've been looking online to see when you're going to start again. I just want to tell you, thank you so much. I very much enjoy the stories that you've come up with thus far. I can't get enough of them. But I just wanted to tell you, I just finished listening to Kaku, and I think the story was brilliant, I enjoyed all of the ups and downs of the characters, and I look forward to hearing about the two offsprings.
0: Hi, Therese. I'm glad you enjoyed The Cuckoo. I don't have any plans right now to write about John's children, but you never know when inspiration will strike.
1: I also wanted to talk about Walk in Shadows. It was also a great story, and I like your stories because they're not too long. Um, In the past, I've listened to different podcasts where the stories are 18 chapters long, 21 chapters long. Although I listen to the complete story of those podcasts, it takes longer to get through them. And I very much enjoy the short stories.
0: Thanks. While I can't say I'll never run a long novel on this podcast, both Making the Cut and Things Unseen are quite long, Right now, I'm enjoying telling stories in the novella and short novel formats. It's fun to get to explore lots of different corners of the Metamorph City universe, rather than locking in on one single story for months at a time.
1: Also, Elysian Springs, if I'm pronouncing that right, I enjoyed that story too. I enjoy all of your work. I'm so glad that you've been able to come back and give us more of your stories. Thanks for coming back. This is the first time I've ever left a feedback on any podcast or anything. Having trouble with iTunes though, trying to leave a review. But once I figure that out, I will do so. Um your loyal fan, Therese. Thanks so much for coming back. Your writing is awesome. I enjoy your podcast because I like the sound of your voice. Um, I don't think you have to have other people in your stories because you have a good voice. And keep up the good work. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for calling in. I'm always excited when I hear from my listeners, and I feel honored that my podcast is the first one you ever chose to call and give feedback. As far as iTunes is concerned, there are a few steps you need to follow to leave a review. First, open up the iTunes store and search for the podcast. The best way to do this is just to search for my name, Chris Lester. You'll see The Raven in the Writing Desk pop up as one of the first options in the podcast section. Click on the logo and you'll be taken to the podcast's description page. Under the podcast name and my name, you'll see three tabs— details, ratings and reviews, and related. Click on ratings and reviews. You'll see a section called customer ratings. That's where you can rate the podcast from one to five stars, quick and easy. And below that is customer reviews. Click the write a review button and a box will pop up where you can enter your review. Thanks again for calling. I'm glad you're digging the stories, and I hope you continue to enjoy what I have waiting for you in the months to come.
2: Hi, this is Trish Ian, first-time caller here. I wanted to say you are really knocking it out of the park with the three graces. I'm amazed by your portrayal of the depth of Nathan's love for Natalie, Amelie, and even Elora. The passion shaking in his or your voice while defending someone most people would think indefensible. Wow. I'm actually having more trouble sympathizing with Amelie than with Elora saying she'd risk anything for her daughter after already overpowering Natalie's free will and subjugating her to the high priestess. But I guess she's so drunk on the vampiric Kool-Aid that she doesn't even see the dichotomy there. However, even in present-day America, there are parents who crush their children into molds, convinced they're doing their best to raise them right, so that's not really too far-fetched.
0: Exactly. Exactly. One of the dangers of this kind of fervent religious passion is that you can start to think you've found the one right way to live. You might be able to let other people live their lives in error or in sin, but when it's your own child, you're going to move heaven and earth to get them right with God, whatever you think that might mean. Amelie certainly doesn't know herself as well as she thinks she does. To slightly modify a quote from Gail Foreman, dying for someone is easy, living for them is hard.
2: I've been speculating who's been forcing Nathan to talk about all this. The Lightbringers seem a likely choice. Maybe they end up playing into Natalie's rescue somehow. Or maybe with Elora's death, Nathan regains enough free will to go for outside help for Natalie. Although that seems dangerous in its own way. I don't know. Then again, I'm wondering whether Amelie ends up giving herself over to Malcolm Margaret in order to keep her daughter safe. After all, we know, because of dreams of change, that Natalie does live through this, and Nathan didn't seem too overly worried about Natalie's safety in
0: that story. The Lightbringers, eh? Interesting guess. You'll find out next week.
2: Finally, I'm wondering whether the title, The Three Graces, just refers to the last name of the family, or if there's going to be some kind of grace or miracle or small mercies or something bestowed on the family to give some other kind of layer to the title. I guess I'll just have to keep listening to find out. Thanks so much for all you do. You do great work. Keep it up. Thanks. And keep it on the bright side.
0: Thanks. The title of The Three Graces comes from Greek mythology. The so-called graces were minor goddesses of beauty, nature, and creativity. This is also the name given to a cluster of three giant sequoia trees at Yosemite National Park in California. The trees grow very close together, and scientists believe they're actually connected below the surface through their roots. I was struck by the beauty of these trees when I first visited the park, as well as their interdependence. If one of them were ever to fall, it would almost surely take the other two with it. It was an idea that stuck with me as I thought about the three members of the Grace family that Nobilis had created, two we had seen, and one who was still unknown to us. I had the thought that these three supported and depended upon each other in ways that weren't immediately clear to us from the outside, and that's one of the things that made me want to tell their story.
3: Hey Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. This is feedback for episode 20, I believe, part 5 of The Three Graces. I thought it was cool how we continued to see more nuance of Allura. I mean, I know I commented on that last time and you replied to the commentary, but seeing her give that smile and then dash back into the building. That was just pretty badass and awesome. And I appreciate the fact that, you know, Nathan, when he's telling whoever this, you know, narration of events, I really thought it was cool how he slash you as your voice acting was choking up over this and saying, look, I know that she has done these bad things and I'm not exactly excusing them. It's just that, well, in addition to that, she saved people's lives just here and she cared about those people. And the fact that he said... You know, I loved her. I love her. That that um, That's some powerful stuff. I also liked the phone call with Malcolm Art That was definitely interesting. I cracked up over the fact that he thought that kidnapping a child, instead of being wrong, was rude. <laughs> it's just like, of course. And I thought it was cool how Allura and Amelie had the exchange of you know I could make you I could order you to not go and then well yeah you could but I'd hate you forever for it and I'd never forgive you that little exchange I thought was really cool but I thought it was kind of sad that a moment of tension was one of the last moments that Amelie and Allura had together but you know they did have that very last bit was you know positive so that's good and Amelie didn't have to see Allura go off and die so maybe that was good too for Amelie anyway I like seeing Harrison a bit more. I also... I was listening the second time to the whole thing, actually, and your commentary about him probably having had special ops training reminded me. I'm wondering about what, you know, how much Amelie can control her, like, physical abilities now, or, well, her vampire abilities that would be relevant in this situation with extracting Natalie because I know that, you know, she was staying with Allura to learn how to control her impulses and such and use her power properly, but I doubt any of that was really like, say, combat training. I I don't know. I'm just wondering if how much of it comes instinctually to a fledgling vampire versus how much it has to be taught in this world versus other vampire lore.
0: Some parts of vampire behavior are strongly influenced by instinct. They were created as super-predators, and they have the inborn skill set to match that. The things we saw Amelie doing in this chapter—prowling, stalking prey, pouncing, killing, feeding, even defending her young— these are all the actions of the beast, the instinctual predator inside her. The problem is, when a vampire is leaning heavily on the beast, she's not separating her rational thoughts from the beast's impulses. Fledgling vampires are especially vulnerable to this, because their instincts are strong and they don't have a lot of experience in dealing with them. So while the beast and the rational mind might want to achieve the same goals, the beast isn't going to be constrained by the sorts of pragmatic concerns that would hold the rational mind back from acting on those desires. We'll hear more about this in next week's episode, when we switch back to Amelie's point of view. To answer your question, though, military-style combat training is useful for vampires, not because it makes them more dangerous or effective in a fight, but because it teaches them how to fight like people, instead of monsters. Unfortunately, that wasn't something that Amelie and Allura had time to work on before Allura died.
3: I do think it's good that you took your little vacation, but I am looking forward to weekly episodes again. Even though you only took a week off, I missed more fiction enough to have listened to this chapter a second time. So, anyway, continuing to enjoy the story, and hope you're uh, keeping on keeping on with the writing. I'm sure you are. Rock on, and talk to you later.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Hopefully we'll be able to keep going steadily through without any more breaks until Christmas. Especially since I have to put out a bonus episode this month. And on that note, now it's time to recognize this week's new Patreon patrons Benjamin, David, Gary, Abraham, and Paul. Thanks to their generous contributions, we have successfully surpassed our first milestone goal. That means that during the coming month, I will write a special bonus episode for the podcast and release it to the Patreon patrons in early November. One month after that, it will be released into the regular feed. If you'd like to get early access to cool stuff, including bonus episodes, author commentaries, and cover art, why not join our growing team of Patreon patrons? Go to patreon.com slash author chris lester and check out the pledge levels and perks that are available. The more of you who support the show, the more capital I'll have to sink into things like story art, ebooks, and print novels. And that means more cool stuff for you. If you'd like to share feedback, send your comments in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash author chris lester, and my handle on Twitter is ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To engage in conversation with your fellow metamorphs, join the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group, or the Metamorph City discussion forums at metamorphcity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more story, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Three Graces is A Girl Alone by Hungry Lucy. It was made available for use through Nevio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. For more of their music, please visit HungryLucy.com. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.